0: was like time stood still. It was like (coughs) And it must have been a millisecond, but it's eternal. And there was like a voice, but there wasn't. There was just a knowing. And it said, you've got to leave your job. You've got to come and work here. You've got to work with the poorest of the poor.
1: My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Bill Cruz is one of Australia's great social justice churchmen. A Uniting church minister in Ashfield, he established the Exodus Foundation, which provides meals, healthcare, and education, and operates an outreach fan that helps the homeless. Bill's been involved in drug rehabilitation, education and prevention programs, created the first Life Education Centre with Ted Knoffs, and is active in public debates around refugees, poverty, institutional child abuse poker machines and homelessness. Bill, thanks for joining the Good Life Podcast. Thanks, Andrew. So you were born in England during World War II, a pretty tough time to come into the world.
0: Yeah, it was... um, (laughs) My mum and my grandma used to stand each side of my cot with a sheet over the top so that if a bomb fell... Um, none of the glass would get onto me. So, you know, you can't have much more of a, a vulnerable birth than that. Yes. You know? And and I kind of think of that and I think of, in a way, the bravery, like just standing there with a sheet. Yes. You know, hoping if the roof fell in, it wouldn't crush on top of me, you know? Yeah. Was your dad serving in the military? My dad was in the Royal Air Force and... um He, towards the end of the war, when I was born, sort of thing, he went over to Germany with them. And so um, um, I spent the early part of my life, you know, the first nearly year of my life, um, with my mum and my grandma, yeah. So my dad then came home.
1: What was it like, uh, your, your relationship with your father?
0: Oh, it's always been fraught. It's only in the last... Uh, six months of my life that i 've actually been able to look outside of myself and at him and kind of see another side because he had an extraordinarily tough upbringing oh he? very tough his um his father came back from World War one um, with PTSD now and he um he ended up somewhere being the town clerk of of Hackney, all of that sort of stuff, the deputy town clerk. And um, um through all the depression and all of that, cut his throat in a park, so that um, my my grandma was left with two little boys, six and eight, and um, with no there was very little social help those days. And um, the two little boys used to walk the streets of um, East London collecting all the horse dung and selling it for a penny farthing a bag and um, giving the money to their mum. And my dad would tell me those stories and cry, you know. So he went from that, from that upbringing through to becoming an officer in the Air Force... Through to becoming chief engineer of one of the major companies in Australia, so that like he really pulled himself up. Like, that's a real yes. determination. Yes,
1: you think the way you describe it, it's the sort of level of poverty you think of as a, a street urchin living in a developing country. Yeah, kind of it was collecting exactly manure the same. is almost a caricature of
0: poverty. It's so that's brutal. right, that's yeah. right, that's right. And it was just this year I walked the streets where. They walked, him and his brother used to walk. And it was quite sobering because um, you suddenly get the feeling of what it was like. And you weren't an only child? You had
1: a brother? I had and a
0: brother. My, my dad, I think my dad came home from the war expecting to be the centre of attention and found that I was. <laughs> <laughs> Which meant there was a great disappointment. Mm. and it meant I'd spent a lot of my life feeling I was a disappointment and my brother, of course, because he was born with my dad coming and all that, became the centre of family life. And then when my brother was accidentally killed in a car smash, I always thought it should have been me. So there's all of that sort of stuff going on. That must
1: have been incredibly tough on,
0: on you. How old were you when you, your brother died? Oh, my brother died when I was 20, but he, had, he was 18 and he'd been the, the, the hero of the whole family, you know, and all of that. Yes. So it was terrible. It was, it was a sad thing and it's only now I'm starting to be able to come to terms with all of that.
1: What tuned you into poverty and social justice through your childhood? Is this something that you thought you
0: wanted to, no. to have an impact on as a no, kid? No, I was a loner. I was always a loner. I, I, um, always, um, I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney, where all the refugees from all over the world came. So I grew up with kids called Athanas and God knows what other names, you know, and we were all mates, all had bare feet, you know, had a great time, used to climb all the trees, wander through the bush all of that, that's why I have a great love for Mm. Western Sydney. And, um, um, but I was always a bit of a loner, always, and never quite fitted in, so that if somebody had come to me and said, Bill, you're adopted, Mm. I'd have said, why didn't you tell me earlier? (laughs) (laughs) So that, you know, just the way it was, just, um, yeah, so... Yeah, I'd always felt a bit on the outside of things, and so I didn't fit in too good. At, at when I sh- when my parents shifted and ended up, I went to Townsville Grammar School and was hideously bullied there. You know, terrible. They came to me one day and said, "Would I give the end of year speech?" And I said, "No." I said I was too bullied there. You could have given <laughs> a cracker speech. They came, well, they came and they apologised and all of that. Yeah. So you know. Did you so give I the did. speech after that? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Did you talk about the the bullying and that's? Yeah yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, so that um, I suppose through the western suburbs, I had a natural fit with refugee people and people on the outside and people with the arse out of their <laughs> pants. They were people I grew up with, so I had that. And also, not feeling I fitted in, it, it was natural, I suppose, in the end that I would um, gravitate to something like that.
1: But in the meantime, you specialised in ultra pure single crystal, crystal sil- silicon uh, yeah. as an electrical yeah, engineer. Yeah, well, my dad, was,
0: my dad was an electrical engineer, and I suppose trying to keep up with him, I tried to emulate him, ended up doing all this research in sil- single crystal silicon. And it was really funny because you had to put all these impurities in it, like arsene and phosphine and all these gases, where the, um, the symptoms of, of poisoning was trembling and dry mouth. Well, I had that anyway because <laughs> I was so shit scared <laughs> of the things. So that, um, you know, it was, it was interesting. But it, was, it taught me to think linear, linearly mm. and to think from first principles. And you still use those those skills oh, today? Yeah. I still read New Scientists every week.
1: Interesting. Sure. So you uh, you began volunteering at the Wayside Chapel mm. in 1969.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, uh, 1969,
1: uh, 70, around that time. Yeah, and then Ted Noffs had only founded it about uh, five years five earlier years before. In, in King's, yeah. and King's Cross. Um, what I find interesting about Wayside is it's not just uh, a spiritual place, but it's also... Yeah, uh, very activist. It's involved in the anti-Vietnam it, rallies and Charlie Perkins' Freedom Rides. And
0: conversation seems to be a really you big part of what do it does. It. You do it. You don't just talk, you do it. And Ted always used to say, it's the doing the doing that gives you the authority to speak the speak. And that's what... It's true. It's true that, that people listen because you're out there doing things. And
1: uh, how important was the conversational side of things? Because you're also involved oh. at this stage with the uh, in the speakers' corner in the domain. Yeah, an institution was, that's largely was... lapsed in the age of Twitter, but was incredibly important.
0: Yeah, well, I still speak in speakers' corner in London. I go and do all that because um, it keeps you alive. And um, um, tell me more about that before you move to the next thing. Yeah.
1: What is it about Speakers' Corner that keeps you alive? Well, I went
0: there to speak in Webster's memory, who was the big speakers thing, and you actually—it's actually where the rubber hits the road because at the moment, Speakers' Corner in London is full of diehard Christians and diehard Muslims shouting at one another, you know, and you kind of are you're there on the front line, you know. Mm. So I get up and I kind of say a pox on both of his, you know. And and this guy comes along and he says, what was the Apostle Paul's surname? <laughs> and I say, I don't know. And we have this big debate with the Christians and the Muslims and we come up and it have to be something like Goldberg, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you actually, in... The language, in the arguing, you actually see one another's humanity mm. and you actually, in a funny way, like one another. So that, you know, you might have this right-wing, God-forsaken Christian going at this Muslim, telling women to keep themselves covered up and all of that. But in that toing and fro you actually get to see a bit of their soul and it's good, it's good. Tell me more about Webster's style. How,
1: how would he begin his his deliveries?
0: Because he he's, he's the up, master of the stuff. He'd get up. Box, he was the master. He'd get up and he'd say, any um, any workers here? And they'd put their hands up. He'd go to work. <laughs> <laughs> any Christians? You know, go to hell. <laughs> any Muslims? Go to somewhere else. And it would... He would... Um, so he's taunting his audience. Yeah, that, yeah, taunting all the time. He'd say, shout the name of the Pope and I'll tell you the scandal. All the stuff like that. And... Um, but I found... Like, he was one of 12 and they were all fantastically brilliant. All of them. And they'd, they in his family had everyone from Trotskyists to Salvationists, you know. And it must have been a tumultuous household mm. to to keep all that talent, you know. And of course Dad was a drunk and Dad got chucked out and the mum looked after them all. And um he was just a total misfit. But he loved Oscar Wilde. Loved Oscar Wilde. So that he turned me on to things that um I he 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 of all the people he was the intellectual. Mm. of all of them, He's, he, had a, he used to cart it, go around with a truckload of books and it'd all be scribbled and written on and, and he'd spent a lot of his time in the London Library. So he just learned... I met, I met... In those days, there were lots of people like that who would start at page one of an of a, uh, encyclopaedia and read, learn, the, learn mm. it all that mm. way. And you don't find those people today. So they know so much. So I remember there's a
1: character in Sartre's Nausea who knows everything about books which have been written from authors starting from A to K, but nothing beyond that. Yeah. And it turns out he's got a library of 3,000 books which he's decided he can read in his life and he's only halfway through at this yes. point. Uh, this sounds a bit like this kind of autodidact character that you're, you're, you're describing. A hunger, sort of... a
0: hunger for knowledge. Mm. A hunger I was at a talk the other day by this Jewish guy and he was saying how the Jewish people, in their hunger, they valued education from the beginning of time. Mm. And that's really true. How did that shape your preaching then?
1: Did you, uh, did, did you sort of hanker for interjections when it uh, came time to stand oh, yeah. up? and give us Oh, a yeah. Break?
0: Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a scientist as well. So you know, um, you're not gonna, you know, I'm not going to be impressed with somebody who believes Adam and Eve was real. You know, um, how can you say that you're a you're you're a minister? Isn't uh, isn't
1: isn't that sort of part of the job to believe that Adam and Eve were real? No, no,
0: I I that's why I kind of bridled a bit at some of the stuff you said because. Um. 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 There are many ways to work through the spiritual side of life and um, um, what I've learned... Like, what I think is what you see out there or what you experience out there is a product of what's in here, total feedback all the time, Mm. so that... um, there are as many ways of interpreting the Bible as there are people's eyes reading it. And, um, and probably many, many different kind of valid ways of looking at it. So I just try and work it out my way. But the moment at which you
1: decide to, to make a break from being an electrical engineer with AWA to, to being a minister yeah. is uh, a, a more classically spiritual moment isn't it yeah. there's a real real oh, yeah. epiphany it came us, from outside
0: that? um i'd been um volunteering a lot at doing stuff at the waste such a lot and um, um ted had got me to be involved in the church services as well and i wasn't terribly i was kind of searching but I got really moved by the Psalms, the Christian Psalms or the Jewish Psalms and I was walking up the stairs one day to go to run the coffee shop and I got to the landing and you had to get on the landing and then go up and it was like time stood still, it was like bang and it must have been a millisecond but it's eternal and... There was like a voice, but there wasn't. There was just a knowing. And it said, you've got to leave your job. You've got to come and work here. You've got to work with the poorest of the poor. You've got to... Um, um, you'll become well-known, but don't worry about that. Um, the work will be hard, long, all of that stuff. You know, hard, done, blah, 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 blah. Hard work, long, become well-known. On oh, By the way, your personal life won't be that happy. And it was just bang. And what do you do? You can't ignore something like that. You can't. You can't. So I went to AWA and I said I've got to go and they got really pissed off. And I left and my family freaked out and, oh, Jesus, they freaked out and they said you won't have a future, all of that stuff, you know. And... I just had to go. I just had to go. And I went and saw Ted and I said, Ted, I've got to come and work for you. And he looks at me honestly and he says, what's the least amount of money I can pay you? <laughs> and there was a, 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 a commune starting up in Woolloomloo for 10 bucks a week. So I said $11 a week. So I went and worked for him for ages for $11 a week. So about $2.50 a day was your first, your first wage. Whatever, wow. whatever, and then in. But I didn't. I didn't have a choice. The only, I, I, like if you read Paul's writings, you know, he calls himself doulos, which is like a slave slash servant, and that's me. You can walk away at any time, but you can't. And then
1: 1983, you uh, entered uh, ministry yeah. ministry studies. Yeah, well, um... things
0: things got a bit tense at the chapel, and. I knew it was time to go and the only theological college that had paid was the Uniting Church. So I went there and um, I got finished. I did it in a couple of years because they gave me some credits. And so I finished in April, but the Uniting Church placed its ministers in January. So I said, what am I going to do until January? And they said, go on the dole. And I thought, what? So I went and saw the moderator and I said, you know, I'm not going to sit around. He said, do you want to go somewhere easy or hard? And I said, hard. And he said, there's problems at Ashfield. So I just knew I had to go there. So I went there. What was it like at the,
1: at the beginning? Do you remember those first days of settling into the period? Yeah,
0: well, I went and talked with all the elders and all of that and they talked about money and bringing in more people and money and people, nothing about religion. And I'd boned up because Ted was quite a heretic. And I said, (laughs) you haven't asked me anything religious. And the oldest guy there looked at me, honestly, broke out in a sweat and said, you believe in God, don't you? I said, yes. He said, that's all we want to know. And there were basically 10 old ladies and a really super strict Christian family, running, controlling them. So I had to confront the Christian family ultimately and the ten old ladies and I had an amazing time. They became like my aunts, you know. I kept saying, you don't know what you're getting and they said, that doesn't matter. And everything happened. And next thing there's homeless people and homeless kids because the police started bringing all the homeless kids, you see, because they knew I was there. We had nothing, so we slept them all on the pews of the church. Or the church, they were just sleeping there. And um, the old gals used to come up and bring the morning tea, you know, like all this Edwardian stuff. And it was lovely. It was lovely.
1: So you're there and you've just arrived, you're in your early 40s, and you started the Exodus Foundation pretty much straight off the bat when you got uh, when,
0: when to got Well, to it Washington. took two or three years. But did you always know that you wanted No, I know I had no idea. I had I, I knew I had to get well known because it was the only protection I had. Um I I knew um I kept opening the opening the doors of the church and seeing who came in and working with them. Um I I, I was caught up in a whole lot of different stuff like Barlow and chambers and all that stuff was going on mm. in those days so I knew I'd be doing things on the edge that um, people would be wouldn't get on too well you know and and also um, bringing in homeless kids the first groups I started were for really lonely people I started a thing for lonely people um, I just Experimented around until found out what was really needed.
1: What did you uh, take and discard from the Wayside model? Because I guess an outside observer would see you as setting up sort oh. of um, child child of Wayside. In they some, kept some saying sense.
0: to me, "You can't recreate the cross here." The cross meaning King's King's cross. cross. Yeah. Um, I went out with the ambulance for a good while at night. And got the picture of the Inner West after dark. Mm. And it was a pretty gruesome place, you know. Oh. And um, so that gave me a good insight into what was needed, you know. And my thing was always just to open the doors, see what came in, and then ex- then react to the need. We became... Um, we used to look after all the. There was a lot of um, prostitution on Canterbury Road, so we used to be all the needles and condom exchange for the for the girls on the road and all of that sort of stuff.
1: And you you began to feed large numbers of people. Now you yeah you, you now feed hundreds of people yeah. a, a day. Uh, that how did that evolve? Well, it just
0: happened. We were opening the doors of the church and we found a lot of people coming in were simply hungry and um, we'd throw together any money we could and on a Monday night cook a leg of lamb and things and before long 90 people were turning up and we were just doing that Monday nights and then one Saturday Singer turned up, John Singleton and he said, I just won all this money on the horses what would you do if I gave it to you? I said, I'd open a soup kitchen. He said, call it Loaves and Fishes, and here's the money. Bang. And we started the next day. The council gave us the pots and pans. The mayor came and off it went. We started with 80 people and it just built up from that. It's an extraordinary uh, enterprise that you've
1: uh, you've created there. and You also worked a lot with uh, drug addicts as well. Always. Um, which has Always. been, you know... Uh, Always. An ongoing controversy in Sydney. I think Sydney was uh, the heroin capital of the world by, oh, yeah. now, by, by the late 19- oh, 1990s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how has that work evolved? We
0: started, I started a group called Uniting Families, um, which was for families of kids who had died. And we really never got beyond day one because every week there'd be somebody coming in whose kids had died that week. And it was heartbreaking, heartbreaking. And they weren't criminals or whatever. They were just ordinary kids, you know. And, um, oh, it was heartbreaking. Just the stories, just the pain of it all. And um, um, we'd have sometimes 300 families. And, um, like, the number of deaths from heroin in those days from kids... And that was equaling the number of kids killed in car smashes. Like people... Or people killed in car People don't realise how big it was. Like one of the things I realised is um, I deal in death all the time. Like that's... Yeah, that's something that's slowly come upon me that um, most of the people I really value have died early. And that's quite sad. Really sad.
1: What do you say at the beginning to parents parents who've lost a child? Oh,
0: you just ache with them. Just sit with them. Just... You just cry with them. That's all you can do. Cry with them. I think... I think that's the, um, the big thing, that um, you can't take the pain away, but you can provide a safe environment for it to be expressed. And, oh, it's, it's awful. It's, I've been with parents, taking them to the morgue to recognise or to, you know, recognise their children, and they're beating on the glass trying to wake them up. Awful. Awful. The pain of it is just awful, awful.
1: Does it help to have those groups where parents who've suffered the same loss are able to to be in the same room with one another? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. What I've learned about great tragedy is it either breaks you or it breaks you open. And what I try and do is help people to be broken open, otherwise they get bitter and twisted. And Like my dad, when my brother was killed, he took down all the photos off the walls, locked them away and wouldn't allow, almost wouldn't allow his name to be mentioned. Mm. You know. And my poor mum had to suffer that all those years. And, yeah, it's, it's important that great pain breaks you open.
1: What is it to be broken open,
0: Bill? Um, To be sensitive to the feelings of others. What I've found is in times of really great pain and suffering, um, people start talking about love and to allow the lovingness to come out. Mm. I've been... You, you'd you be surprised the numbers of times people just start talking about love, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, that's when it gets open, you know? So that um, now the Buddha says a broken heart is a beautiful thing because it knows what other broken hearts are feeling. And it's true. That's why you try and open it out. Hmm.
1: You also saw a lot of the suffering that was uh, inflicted by institutions uh, and uh, oh. you were you were talking about this well before anyone was talking oh. about a, a royal a royal Commission. Yeah. Um, tell us about some of the uh, the the children you saw through that, people like blue and and Mary there were Farrell.
0: hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of kids. Like you've got to remember that in in those days to have an illeg- illegitimate child was a terrible thing and um so those kids were put in institutions or adopted out or whatever and you tend to think that the people who would run those institutions would be loving caring people and they were exactly the opposite a lot of them and they would exploit these kids and um they'd sexually abuse them and um um so the kids would run away and they'd run away to king's cross and they'd tell me all these stories. I remember I was with one boy, um, he was about 11, 12, and he had, um, the adopted people, his adopted parents had given him back and he would escape from the institution and run into my office and ring him up and beg him to take him back and they'd say, no, 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 you steal and you do this and you lie. And we don't want you anymore, and all of this stuff. And he would wreck my office, you know. And he ended up one day killing a taxi driver and stuffing his body in the boot. And there were stories after stories like that, you know, where um, little Mary, who I met, who was 12, I think, first of all, and she was a little Aboriginal girl, and she used to get raped a lot in the places and she would rub her skin against the wall hoping it would go white because um, maybe if she was white she wouldn't be raped so much. Oh, Then the, the police, they, they came and took her. One day they rang me up and they said, we've got to take her. Three police came, took her, locked her in the van, raped her on the way to the... Institution just happened. Just like that happened day after day after day after day for kids. And I was, I was put on this committee to look at the Child Welfare Act, which was run by a Catholic priest. It was awful. Awful. I went along... Because um, in those days, girls exposed to moral danger used to have um, virginity tests done by the authorities... It's bizarre. I know, I know. And it consisted of inserting a finger. And um, I'd got um, Professor Ian Webster, who you might know, mm. he, he wrote this treatise on they don't have to do that anymore. And the, um, the priest at the head of the thing said, um, oh, but you'd only need one of these girls to get through that and she'd infect everybody. Um, And we know how promiscuous they are, so we're not going to... So I thought it's a waste of time, just a waste of time being involved. So I didn't go back.
1: What lessons do we learn as a society from that that institutional... If If there's a
0: house on the hill with blinking lights which says we care about people, chances are they don't. And that the one place where people are really vulnerable today is nursing homes. So I would expect the same things to be going on in nursing homes that used to go on in the orphanages. And it means we have to watch them all the time, all the time, you know. That's a, a harsh view, given,
1: given how many wonderful community organisations there are helping the vulnerable, oh. including
0: your own. Oh. Um, I, used to, I wrote to Princess Diana begging her not to become uh, whatever she was a Bernardo's because of the pedophiles in it. No, 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 Just because an organisation says it's good doesn't mean it is. But at the same
1: time, we don't want to snuff out the... No, the, no, the, no, the no, I'm and not the caring, saying that. ...the good, the goodness. I'm so. saying
0: that in the way, in the thing that it's up to everybody in that organisation to keep it up to what it's supposed to do. Mm. I'm not I'm not decrying it. I'm just saying, um, don't believe the bulldust. yes. <laughs>
1: How much do you think uh, your father's upbringing and that extreme poverty we spoke about beforehand shaped what you do and the way in which you think about the most vulnerable?
0: I really don't know. Um, I really don't know. Um, I think probably it came from my mother as well. Probably. And probably... Yeah, probably... I remember when his mother died and he'd done all this stuff for her and he was crying and he was saying, I was a terrible son. Like... What do you say to that? What do you say to that? But he'd given you, everything. You
1: collected horse manure in the streets of London yeah. to, get, to, to yeah, feed the family. but I was
0: a terrible son. Yeah. Yeah
1: like life is so much guilt on his shoulders then so despite much. the success so much
0: yeah. so much
1: yeah uh, and you've uh, you've also been active in, in public communication since 2002 you've had a, uh, a program on 2GB, 2GB yeah on su- sunday sunday nights Yeah. Uh, how is that public communication side important for you in, in, in what you do? Because it, it's very well, unusual for well, a, a churchman to have a radio show.
0: In well, a way, it wasn't a couple of generations rung me, ago. Singer rang me and asked if I'd do it because there'd been trouble on the station, and uh, which there always is. And um, I, I found I was good at it. And um, it just grew. And I get amazed at the number of people because... Basically, it's a uh, a talkback show, a secular talkback show run by a reverend. And yet so many people think of it as their church service. Mm. So many. I don't even play hymns. And, um, yeah, it's, it's very special. Like the other week, this woman rung, like... Oh, God. We were talking about who you... Who who's had the big influence on your life. And she said, my dad. She said he was one of 12 and blah, blah, blah. And she's talking about her dad and all of that. Then gradually, as she keeps talking, she starts talking about her marriage and her kids. And you find out gradually the girl had mental problems and the boy had this. And then as it goes on, you hear the boy came to the mum and said, you know, dad gets into bed with, Jane, and it goes all this way, and she's telling these terrible things that have gone on in her life as if it's just me, mm. and there's 100,000 people listening, you know. Yes, and y- you realize there's a holiness to it, and that's what I try and honor that. And you've, uh, you've also
1: uh, been active in a succession of causes over the years. Uh, you've, you've been active on pokey's reform and refugees. Uh,
0: you were saying anything, earlier... Anything that um, takes people's freedom away. Mm. Anything that binds the people thread. up. People get bound up, you know. They either get bound up by family stuff or community stuff or legal stuff or stuff that binds them up. And you were saying to me before that you, uh, you now think of your
1: life as pre-2015 and post-2015. Yeah. What, what was that transition?
0: lady rung me on the radio because I've learned to say yes to everything because most stuff falls away and you end up with interesting stuff you never even believed you could get mm. caught up in. She rang up and she said, I've got this film to show and no-one will show it. It's called The Anonymous People. And I said, OK. And it's about people who are in the 12-step movement, you know, NA, and who um, were coming out and talking about how they'd been addicted and how they got off to encourage other people. So we showed it. And a 100 people turned up. And at the end of the... Film, the whole thing kind of became an NA meeting, Mm. Narcotics Anonymous. And it kind of got with this girl who was talking about she'd come from this really well-off home and she found herself one day injecting heroin into herself from water that she'd syringed up from the public toilet. And... I learned from that, that when your secrets become a story, they lose their power over you. And I thought, that's a pretty good way to live. And at the same time, Hugh McKay had got his book out saying that um, um, the one thing on the deathbed people regret most is the loving things they haven't said. And those two things struck me. And... I began to clean my life out a bit because your life is just a story. It's just another story, you know, and you've got all these secrets in it Mm. and you think nobody knows your secrets, but everybody knows your secrets because they're written all over your face. So that... um, And the other thing I found, and I found this, I found... I was with this street guy and I really care about him. I really love him. And we were talking away and I said, I really love you, you know. And it changed his life. And what I mean by that is that there's so much we bottle in ourselves that is liberating to get out. Mm. And when you do that, you've just got to look at St Paul or, or, or Martin Luther or anybody like that. When they realise that they are free human beings. The greatest thing they can do is celebrate their freedom, you know. And in celebrating the freedom, you change the world. And that um, opened me up. And I ended up in... I I, I was in... Cal- uh, it's a long story, but... I was in the. I spent a good bit of time in the jungle, which was the big refugee camp there. In Calais, in, in France. In Calais, in yeah. France, all the refugees from all over Europe, all over the Middle East and Africa mm. and that. And I saw a sign. And it said, "In um, a meeting today." And I thought, "I'll go to that." Not, I'm no addict, you know. And sitting on a carpet like this, probably like this, on the snow, on all the mud and everything, were maybe 15 people, men and women. There was black people, Middle Eastern people, women, men, all different, Iranians, Iraqis, all telling their story. And... They were all speaking in their own language and it was being translated into French and I couldn't understand one word. (laughs) But it was all on their faces. You could see it. You didn't need to know the language. You could see it on their faces. And it got to me. I thought, what am I going to say? I'm not an addict. What am I going to say? And I said, oh, I'm Bill from Australia. And they went, English, English, English. I said, no, I can't get you to England. That's what really gets it. All this stuff about democracy and British values and all of that stops it. The... <laughs> it's only for certain people. Only for certain people. The rest of you, keep out. I said, I can't get you to England. Ah, oh. and then it all poured out, and I said, Ah, oh, I'm Bill from Australia. I said. And I've been married twice, I said, and and it's been really hard, I said, and my kids have suffered because of that, I said, and I feel bad about all of that, blah, 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 blah. And they all got up. (laughs) They all got up and they held me and I came in from the cold. Ah. It was just like, and when you think about it, They were Muslims, they were refugees, they were people here. We would drive to Manus Island and they gave me my life back. And it was, I thought, how do I honour all of that? Because you have to do something. And I threw out all my clothes and I only wear black to remember that because... It was the day I came in from being that lonely, isolated little boy to realising the world wasn't the scary place, you know. So to clean your life up, as you put it, is
1: it about truth telling, about being honest about, about the past. Truth
0: telling sounds and- sort of.
1: Uh, There's a bit of public psychotherapy going on. I do
0: a lot of psychotherapy. Mm. A lot. Because I try try and work it all out. And I was only talking with my shrink the other day, you know, and I was saying, why me? Why did that voice or whatever it was come to me? Mm. And he said, because the source of it knew you'd do it. Mm. (laughs) You know, I don't know. I just... Um, it's been, it's it's remarkable. I've, I find my life is just opening up. All these old oh, buggers on two GB they ring me and they say, "Oh, I'm seventy-two and I'm blah blah blah," and I think, "Well, I'm seventy-five and the world's just opening up," you know.
1: Yes, and your your dividing line is in 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 your early seventies there.
0: Well, yeah, and and yeah and. I've, I've realised that I get more and more and more. Um, I've, probably one of the most fascinating people I've met was this Buddhist monk in Thailand who had been a lawyer, a famous, a well-known lawyer in New York, Thai. Gave it all up to go back went right into the rainforests in Thailand, found this old monastery and stone by stone rebuilt it. He can have one meal a day, which he has to beg for. So he goes out with his bowl, begs it. Has any food left over, he has to give away. He's got one piece of clothing and that's it, you know. And... He can't go anywhere without being invited and he gets invited all around the world and he is so still, um, it's just amazing and um, why I'm getting into that is because um, I realise that there are limitations in Christianity itself and I've got really interested in the here and the now Hmm. and that, um, um, yeah, that it's the here and now that's really important and you can only, only, I don't know, if you clean yourself up, the here and now um, opens up to you. And the other thing I've learned is that we are only, it's really interesting, we are only the reflection we see in the eyes of the other so that if you look for a core bill, a diamond bill, there's nothing. A core bill is like a twisted rope of fibre, of little fibres, which are of environment and memories and dreams and hopes, all of that. That's core bill, which is kind of um, found in the company of others. Mm. But also, we, we can only have about a gigabyte of memory so that our memory is collective as well. So that if you want to say, what is the core bill? We don't know. But where you find yourself is when you look into the eyes of the other and you vanish and then you come back and you think, where have I gone? And that space that you vanish into is now in a way surrounded by love, I've noticed, so that what Jesus was talking about in lots of ways is more the here and now than Mm. in the future. And it does sound very similar
1: to that Buddhist notion of uh, accepting everything and rejecting nothing, Uh, taking what comes to you, what lands on your doorstep, and accepting that 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 is what is, rather than uh, railing against what the world has given you.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: So I have to ask you, uh, apropos of nothing, to tell us the story of the million-dollar donation. That uh, that that pulled pulled you out of out of a very tight tail. Uh, tell us about how this donation came about.
0: <laughs> we were really. This is why, like, I I really believe out there is a projection of in here, you know. But there really is something somewhere out there, and you know, like, we'd borrowed all this money from. The church, half a million dollars, and we'd spent four hundred and ninety nine thousand nine hundred and seventy, and I was shitting myself, you know, honestly thinking, how are we going to go on?" And the phone rang. And um, I couldn't believe it. This guy was a lawyer in New Zealand in Melbourne, and he said, "Where do you want me to deposit the million dollars?" Oh. So anyway, <laughs> I said, <laughs> we fixed it up, and I thought, well, if there's one, there might be two. So I went down to see him, and I said, um, you know, thank you very much for the money, you know, will you thank the person, blah, blah, blah. Is there any chance of getting any more? And he said, no so I left it I thought that's the end of it and then that year I had to have my knees replaced because I'd had an accident so they gave me this put all these metal knees in and um, I, I the operation went on it was all done but they couldn't get my waterworks working properly so they never knew what rehab facility I could go into because they couldn't get me fixed up, you know. So they'd say, oh, you're going there, and then no, and then you're going there, no, we've got to keep you another day. Over there, no, blah, 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 blah. And then um, one lunchtime, they finally said, you can go. So I had to ring around and we found a place I could go to. Like, totally random. Mm. So I get in there and I get friendly with the head nurse, you see. And he's coming in and out, dropping in and out. Because my waterworks were still playing up. Then at the end of his shift, which was like eight hours later, he thought, oh, I'll just drop in and check on Bill. So he comes in to check on me and it's not working properly. So while he's fiddling and doing all this, he said, ''What did you do with the million dollars?'' Mm. ''Honestly.'' And I go,
1: ''What?''
0: And I said, ''How did you know about that?'' He said, ''Well, he said, um, last year or a couple of years ago or a few years ago... No, last year, he said, the, um, ''We went through a severe economic times.'' And we had to cut the staff, and there was a cl- two cleaners, the man and his wife, and we had to take the man to halftime and put the wife off, so they went from two salaries to half a salary. And then finally, they had to put the man off, and they were worried because he was t- quite disabled and all of that. They're like they're just cleaners, you know, and. Um, the man had taken the last pay, and he'd gone with his wife to do the shopping, and they got four dollars left. And they said, "Will we have a cup of tea or buy a lottery ticket?" And they bought a lottery ticket, and they won nineteen million dollars. And because they were disabled, they bought a. They bought a uh, the the. They got a financial planner who got them an apartment block and all of that stuff. And they got a house for them and their kids and all of that sort of stuff. And he said, I want to give a million dollars to Bill because he teaches kids to read and I could never read. And when you think of all the Mm. trials through that, and we checked it all, it was true.
1: It's astonishing.
0: astonishing. It is, isn't it? And yet things like that have often happened. That's why I know there's something out there, although... My brain tells me it's all a function of what's in the <laughs> that electrical engineer brain of yours. Yeah,
1: um, Bill. A couple of final questions. What advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: Never give up. Never give up. You can always circle back. Never give up, because I would have never thought what happened to me. Now, what what I'm doing now would have, you know, never give up. You never know what's around the corner. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, um, I I used to believe I was powerless. (laughs) Now I know I'm not. When did that view change? Just now. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think, yeah... I think, I think, yeah, so many people blame everything else and some of it's true, but it's also how you deal with it. How you deal with it. I've, I've just learned that um, um, we actually need to spend a bit of time each day hearing another voice than our own because it can then... Change because your own voice goes round and round and, round and 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 it drives all your emotions and all of that. Mm. But another voice can come in and intersect with that and change the whole pattern in you and it can start you again. When are you most happy? I was going to say when I've done a good job. Um, I think I'm most happy now when my kids are. um, um, when I'm relating with my kids because it's been a long hard journey building all that up. So yeah.
1: What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy?
0: I walk every day. I meditate every day. And I do psychotherapy. How long do you meditate for? Half an hour, forty minutes. Do you use an app, or is there a practice to use? No, I, I, um, I actually I use the Ananda Marga <laughs> meditation technique. <laughs> but um, at the moment, um, I've also found one on the internet, hmm. so I do that. Uh, do you have any guilty pleasures? I tend to eat too much. So I have to watch my diet all the time.
1: And finally, Bill, what person or what experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
0: Probably the Dalai Lama. Probably. I don't know. I, I, I often feel he'd be the loneliest man on the planet. And he bears the pain of his people so well and um, he's still able to um, function. I, I sometimes wonder how he can function and he actually gave up all his power. He's the only one I know who gave up political power. You know, like, I just love the ground he walks on.
1: Bill Cruz, uh, reverend, talk show host and social justice campaigner, thanks for taking the time to share your wisdom on The Good Life podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you've listened this far, I'm guessing you're a fan of the show. So please, take a moment to fill out our two-minute survey. You can find a link to it in the show notes for episode 100 with Jonathan Haidt. And if you enjoyed this conversation, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Kate Latimer, Bob McGuire... Tim Costello and Brad Chilcott. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.